We're going to be in chapter 5 today. If you want to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. And the big idea that we have been going through in this book of 1 Peter has been uh, this, this idea of a, of a letter of encouragement written to churches going through persecution. These churches in modern day Turkey that the Apostle Paul founded going through intense persecution, as you well know if you've been going through the study with us. And Peter writes this letter to encourage these Christians not to lose hope, not to abandon their faith, not to give up or compromise, but rather to resist. Resist the enemy and to trust in the Lord. And what we've been looking on as we've been going through this book over the last several weeks is we've been focusing on this issue of suffering. And of course, the question isn't, will I suffer, but rather, how will I suffer? Will I suffer for doing good or will I suffer for doing bad? Will I suffer with the mind of Christ? And perhaps most importantly, will I glorify God through my sufferings? Well, we pick it up in 1 Peter 4.19 as we're going to transition into chapter 5, but Peter concludes the thought in 1 Peter 4.19 where we begin today and we read, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls, the souls meaning the, the seat of our feelings, of our desires, of, uh, of our affections. And so Peter says, uh, let their, those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. In other words, what Peter says is that when God prescribes suffering in our lives, that we can turn it into praise and worship by doing good. Now, if you see that phrase doing good there in in verse 19 of chapter 4, you might want to circle that. And nearby you could write this, you could write a right course of action. Because uh, that's really what that phrase doing good means. It means a right course of action. Peter's saying, listen, you can worship the Lord if he has prescribed suffering in your life. You can worship the Lord uh, by just uh, committing your soul, the very fiber of your being to God through taking a right course of action. How you navigate a right course of action through that time of suffering, through that time of trial. Now, that right course of action, that's the big idea of our message today as Peter now begins to outline a right course of action for the churches that Paul founded. Now, according to Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin, that great theologian, uh, obviously, man, being facetious, Led Zeppelin, uh, the band, certainly anything but something that glorifies God, and Robert Plant, certainly anything but uh, a theologian. But, you know, uh, he said <laughs> that there are two paths that we can go by. And uh, that much is true. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. And Robert Plant is right when he says there's basically two paths that we can go by. Jesus said so himself. He says there's a path that leads to life and that there's a path that leads to death. Now, certainly Jesus is speaking of spiritual death uh, when he talks about this path that leads to death, this broad road that leads to destruction. Uh, He's talking about a spiritual death, but we see this truth illustrated, this truth that there's a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. We see it illustrated in the physical world as well. Case in point, Charity Gibson. Here's a gal, February 12th, 2008, who was leaving flight training in Daytona Beach, Florida, and as she was leaving, uh, noted that there was someone coming down the parking lot following her uh, in a car. 
And so she saw this person, and the reason the person stood out is because as this guy's following her, he's wearing uh, a hoodie type of sweatshirt, and there in Daytona Beach, Florida, the temperature of the day was certainly too warm for somebody to be wearing a hoodie, and so the guy stood out as being, you know, somewhat a little peculiar, and uh, and yet she dismissed it. She, she reasoned, you know, this guy isn't following me down the aisle here. She got into her car. Uh, she began to drive out of the parking lot, and sure enough, this guy's following her right out of the parking lot. And she drives several miles and the guy continuing to be behind her and and amazingly, Charity completely dismisses it thinking, you know, clearly, certainly he can't be following me. Well, he was following her and she turned into her apartment building and now by this point in time, now she's concerned that, well, if I try to pull around, maybe he's going to take his car and he's going to block me in. And so Charity parks her car and amazingly enough, because she reasoned that she didn't want to be trapped inside of her car, she got out of her car. Uh, not only did she get out of her car, but she made the decision now that this guy immediately gets out of his car and now he's approaching her. She thinks, well, rather than run, uh, she says, oh, I'm just going to go and talk to him and see what he wants. Charity, up until this point, making a series of very bad decisions. And these bad decisions would, uh, well, they would prove to be her profound downfall in that this man produced a gun, stuck it promptly into her belly, and he commanded that she get into the trunk of her car. He was going to steal her car and he was going to kidnap her. Well, at this point in time, Charity uh, remembered that uh, having read the owner's manual of her automobile handbook, that there was a safety release uh, lever in the trunk of her car. And so Charity decided, well, she'll go ahead and get in the trunk and she'll wait for the first opportunity, knowing which direction this guy would take in her mind that, you know, if he turned a certain direction, that there would be uh, a stop sign coming uh, at a certain point. And she'd driven that way many times. So she knew it. There were only two exits to the parking lot. So if he took the other exit, she knew that way as well. And so she got into the trunk wanting to put some distance between herself and this man with the gun. And then she thought, well, as soon as he stops, I'm going to jump out of the car. I'm going to run. I'm going to get away. Well, that's exactly what happened. He turned the anticipated turn. He came to the stop that she anticipated. And the moment the car came to the stop, she pulled the trunk release and she began to jump out. Well, the guy did what we call a California stop. He didn't come to a complete stop. And so the car had a forward momentum when she jumped out of the car. So hitting the ground, she promptly lost her footing, rolled to the ground, but she sprang up on her feet immediately. And there right in front of her was another car, a car that was following behind hers. And she immediately discerned, seeing the startled look in the driver's eye in this car and recognizing the car itself, that this man was in cahoots with the guy that had just kidnapped her. He was no doubt riding in the car that had been following them. And now here she is face to face with that man. Well, Charity now makes another right decision. Uh, a rice, uh, it takes a right course of action. She runs. She runs like the wind. Run, Forrest, run. She takes off running, and she goes to, promptly to the apartment complex and begins banging on doors. And finally, someone opens the door. Young boy lets her in. They shut the door. They lock themselves into a bathroom. The police are called. 
and these men were subsequently arrested. Now, this could have been a horrible outcome, and the police told Charity that, of course. But the idea here is that Charity began a right course of actions. Now, she had taken a lot of wrong course of actions, and that could well apply to you today. That as, you know, you're listening to this message, and you would think, um, you know, I've made a mess of my life. I've, I've taken a lot of wrong actions in my life. And Charity serves as a great uh, proof uh, example that, you know, here's a person who made a lot of wrong decisions, took a lot, a course of a lot of wrong actions that caused a lot of consequences, but it's never too late to make a change and make a decision that I'm going to, to start making some right choices and take some right actions in my life. So Charity took a right course of action and it life likely made the difference between life and death. And likewise, Peter now in our text in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's going to focus on a right course of action for Christians. And we're going to look at two things uh, today. We're going to look at a right actions for the church at large, and we're going to look at right actions for the elders in charge. Right actions for the church at large and right actions for the elders in charge. Beginning with the elders, Peter says here in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Peter here details the course of actions that elders and pastors should take. It's a synonymous term, elders and pastors. And he details here the course of actions that elders should take, pastors should take in the course of their serving. And the first thing I want you to take note of, if you're taking notes, is that he, he addresses the elders' authority. Now he says in verse 1, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. Now Peter, he, he, he doesn't, you know, glorify or exalt himself. He takes a very humble approach to say, listen, I, I'm a fellow elder, right? Um, but there is a distinction to the, to the role and the calling that Peter has. Because uh, he says, the elders are among you, I exhort, I am a fellow elder, and then he, he says this, he says, a witness of the suffering of Christ, sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now, what's he talking about? Well, when he says that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ, certainly he's talking about being an eyewitness to the crucifixion, uh, and, and, you know, then through the personal sufferings that he has gone through, uh, they're connected with the sufferings of Christ for being a follower of Christ, being a disciple of Christ, being with Jesus Christ. And so there, there was a firsthand witness of suffering. And that placed Peter in a category that, that was unique from every other pastor that he's addressing here. Furthermore, he says not only is he a witness of the sufferings, but he says he's a partaker of the glory which will be revealed. What's he mean by that? Well, not only was he a partaker of the glory in the sense that, you know, in, in uh, Matthew's gospel, Matthew 17, there's the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes up on a mountain. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. They are eyewitnesses to his transformation. And they see Jesus shining like the sun. They see the glory of Jesus Christ. 
right? And, and so he's a witness of the glory in that sense. He's also a, a witness of the glory that will be revealed in the sense that he was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are two things that you and I can't claim that we have ever seen, right? And so Peter, in writing this, very humbly says, listen, I exhort you, I'm a fellow elder, but he also, just by his humble words, conveys the fact that he has a position of authority. Now, What's that mean to us? Well, in every church um, that God established, there, there are elders within that church. We at our church, we have 11 elders currently. Uh, we have uh, several on staff, several that aren't on staff. We have uh, nine of them that are ordained elders. We have two that are not ordained elders. Uh, we prayerfully are raising up and will add more elders as God, you know, calls. And every elder has the same calling. But not every elder on staff has the same gifting. See, God distributes different gifts to the elders. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how some are apostles, some are prophets, some are teachers. And it's the same way in our church. And so while there is a plurality of the elders in the sense that I would say to you, hey, Pastor Ted, I'm one of the pastors here, there is also, uh, you know, and we all share that same calling, there's also certain qualifications that God gives that aren't the same. And this determines the positioning of where people are uh, within the body. My gifting is, is more of a prophetic gifting, and my qualifications are such that I serve as the lead pastor here. Um, and Pastor Nick's qualifications are more administration, just to, to use a couple of us as an example. And so he, sh- he serves as our executive pastor. Now, you know, the, the calling is an equal calling. The functions have, have different functional specifics. And they all work together to be important. You see, um, my responsibility is, is to, to serve and to provide leadership and direction for the church, to, to be able to, to teach you and to set the course for where we're going to go as a church. And I humbly assume that responsibility, but I work in tandem with other called elders that God has ordained, that God has, has called, and we serve together. We're accountable to one another. And you might go, well, gosh, your, your gifting is, is more important than an administrative gifting. Yeah, you might think that until you figure out, okay, my, my child is up in the children's ministry right now, and it's an administrative function to figure out who's got a background check and who doesn't. It's an administrative function to figure out, you know, who, what's the policy going to be with taking kids to the bathroom and things like that. Thank God we have people that are called and placed in different areas of responsibility, and this is how things are supposed to work. So Peter's talking here about the elder's authority. And he's basically putting out there that, listen, there are those elders, they're called by God, and they serve in various capacities and all to complement one another. Now, having said that, ultimately, Peter points out something very critically important, and this is huge for you in discerning the, your, the leadership of your church. You have to say, okay, I get the level of authority, but who's ultimately in charge? Peter says, Jesus is ultimately in charge. Here's what he says in verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, uh, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And what he says there in the beginning of that verse is, listen, shepherd the flock of God. It's God's flock. It belongs to him. 
He doesn't say shepherd the flock of Peter. He doesn't say shepherd the flock of Paul. It's not shepherd the flock of Nick or Ted or Cody. You're God's flock. You belong to him. Critically important there, because here's the thing. Jesus says very clearly to Peter, there's an exchange they have. It's in uh, Matthew chapter 16. Um, And basically, you remember the exchange. Peter takes the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. It's a region filled with idols. And and with the idols as the backdrop, he asks his disciples the question, hey, who do men say that I am? And they're like, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're, some of the, you're one of the prophets, you know. He's like, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And he goes on to say this, I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, a little rock, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, what he's not saying is, Peter, you're a little rock, and I'm going to build my kingdom on you, little rock. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, hey, Peter, you're a little rock, and I'm going to to build my church on this rock, which is Jesus Christ, the profession of faith that that Peter had just made, saying you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Jesus said, that is the rock that I will build my church on, the profession of faith in Jesus Christ, who I am, that, you, that you're trusting in me. And, and so Jesus is the rock that the church is built on, and Jesus said that he is the one. He said, I will build my church. And, and all of that to say this, listen, we, if we have, you know, most of you here, you call Reliance Church your home. Okay, you got to know and have your pencil sharpened to hold the elders here accountable. You need to, to be able to be critically looking and say, the, the qualifications, the criteria that I'm going through, and I'm not done, i got a few more things to talk about in regards to, Peter's got more stuff to say about what t- the elders should look like. You need to look and go, is that what they look like? Because if it ain't what we look like, then you need to find somewhere else to fellowship that looks like this is the point. You need to find a place, and, 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 and most importantly, you need to find a place where the pastor doesn't say, this is my church. If I ever say, this is my church, God kill me dead. This is his church. It belongs to him. I have the great honor and privilege to serve here as your pastor by the grace of Jesus Christ because it's his church, and he'll put anybody in this place that he wants to. And so I say, thank you, Lord. Don't let me mess this thing up, right? And, and so that's why, you know, you guys, you just need to be praying often for, for the elders of this church. Lord, keep them godly. Help them to understand. What does 1 Timothy 3 say about the qualifications of elders? What does Titus 1 say about the qualifications of elders? What are we reading here in 1 Peter 5 about what the qualifications and the practices of elders, what are they? What should they be? And Lord, help these men. Help these men to, 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 to be that. And so that's Peter's first point. Man, you've got to understand the elders' authority. Second point, 
Peter addresses the elders' motives. Notice in verse 2, he says, you know, that hey, you need to shepherd the flock, which is among you, uh, serving as overseers. And, and that means, by the way, you're, you're hot on it, okay? You're shepherding, you know, you're, it's work, man. Let's, let's watch over these sheep. Let's protect these sheep. Let's guard these sheep. Let's love these sheep. Let's nurture these sheep. And you're overseeing, which means I'm attentive too. I'm watching. I'm saying, I'm not just going, oh, I've lost a sheep. Where did he go? I'm saying, oh, that one's going astray. I need to seek him out. This is the attitude, the idea. But he goes on and he says, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not by compulsion. The idea is that you don't have to force the guy to do his job. That's the, that's the point. Several years ago, I got dispatched to a call in Canyon Lake. There was a car that had rolled over. And, uh, and so we got dispatched there, and I arrive on scene, and, and the driver was 58-year-old grandma, and, uh, and she had her 2-year-old granddaughter daughter with her. Now we get on scene, the granddaughter's out of the vehicle, she doesn't have a scratch on her, but the guys are walking away from the vehicle, they're like, she's gone, she's gone. I'm like, what do you mean she's gone? She's like, she's dead. Well, I've got the responsibility as the, the medic on scene to pronounce her, so I go to the vehicle to pronounce her. The lady doesn't have a scratch on her. I don't see any obvious signs of death. Yes, she's pulseless and non-breathing, you know, so, you know, technically she's dead, but as far as my criteria for having the authority to pronounce her dead, she didn't meet it. So I tell these firemen, by the way, it was a unique situation. We had lots of fires going on all over the place, and so we had reserve engines that had come in to cover the area, and so the engine that had responded to this call wasn't even from around here. They were from San Bernardino, and so I, I said to these guys, hey, this gal doesn't meet any criteria. We need to work her up. I can't pronounce her. We need, to, we need to work this gal. We need to C, start CPR on her and get her out of the car. And the guys didn't move. They copped an attitude with me. These, they, these were lazy, didn't want to do their job. The call came down at, at dinner time, and it, it interrupted their dinner. And they were mad that I wanted to try and rescue this gal, tried to resuscitate this gal. And so I, I, I start screaming at the guys. Um, and uh, I'm like, you get off your tail and get over here. And I... Anyway, anyway, I, I, so we're working her up. And, um, well, the gal, we end up getting vital signs back on her. I mean, she, you know, she hadn't regained consciousness. She's not breathing on her own yet, but, you know, she's, we got a pulse, we got a blood pressure, we got a rhythm, right? The, the, my point, I had to force these guys to do their job, right? And, and, and what you don't want when you're talking about the elders of your church, when spiritually speaking you're hanging on by a thread, you do not want the elders of your church to be doing their job by compulsion, do you? No, you want somebody who says, well, okay, you know, it stinks that it's dinner time, but there's a need. And, 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 and so you, you, want to, you want to hold your elders to that standard. Furthermore, Peter adds, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And that word eagerly, it, it literally means a ready mind. And, and the idea is, look, you don't want your elders motivated by money. You know, I, you know the, what I have in my mind's eye, I have this vision. We have so many of you ladies, you're new mommies, right? And, and I have in my mind's eye, one of you new mommies going in, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and your baby is woken up, and you're like, you don't pay me enough for this. 
You know, you might think that, but what do you do? You, 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 you take the kid out and you change his diaper and you're like, oh, I don't want him in there in a poopy diaper, poor kid. That's a, I wouldn't want to lay in there in a poopy diaper. And you want to, so, you know, but I have in my mind's eye when Peter says not for dishonest gain, just this picture of this mom going in going, yeah, I don't get paid for that. Figure it out. Somebody else, that's not my job description. I already worked, you know, my eight-hour shift today. I'm out, right? And, and so Peter's like, that is not the standard for your elders, right? He goes on. Uh, and by the way, just Paul articulates this thought to the Thessalonians. He says, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives also, because you had become dear to us. That's the heart that you want the pastors of your church to have, and that's the heart you should expect. Now, not only does Peter address the, the elders' authority and the elders' motives, but he also addresses the elders' example. This is huge, huge. The elders' example. He says in verse 3, Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, that phrase, lords over you, basically, the idea is that you keep others down <clears throat> and you elevate yourself. The idea is that the rules apply to everybody else, but they don't apply to you. That's the idea here. And Peter says, no, no, no. The elders need to be the example to the flock. You need to be able to look at the elders of your church and say, I'm going to look at that guy. I guarantee he's not perfect. If I look for sin, I'll find it. But what's his example? Does he love his wife? Does he love his kids? Does he set a, a, a godly example in the way that he's living his life? Paul said this to the Romans in, in Romans chapter 2. He said, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And then he goes on to say, listen, for the name of God is blasphemed among the, the Gentiles because of you. And, and I think about just the long list, sad, tragic, train wreck list of, of pastors in our nation who have blasphemed God because... They preached one way and they lived another. And, and for some reason, they thought, hey, I don't have to be an example to my flock. And, and universally, I'll tell you, let me, I'll say it this way. Elders are to be held, pastors are to be held to a higher standard than everyone else. They're to be held, to, and you say, oh, come on. No, listen, so often you will hear a pastor who has fallen, and he says something to the effect of, you know, I'm just like you. I'm just like you. I'm just a man. And people eat it up. They eat it up. And here's why. The reason they eat it up is because it lowers the bar. It lowers the bar, and it basically, frankly, makes sin excusable. Right? And the Bible says, listen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm not saying that pastors are perfect. They're going to sin, but their characterization needs to be that they are examples. And you rightfully need to expect more out of them 
than you might expect of yourself even. Now that's an extreme statement, but, but let me back it up with scripture. Ephesians, or rather James 3.1. James, the half-brother of, of Jesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. You see, so the point is, and, and, and this is why it's so important, the point is, is that your pastors, your elders, they need to set an example. And you need to expect that they will set that example. Because we have members who, as I said, most of you are members of this church. Some of you aren't. And I would say, listen, when you go home to your home church, make sure that that's what the elders and pastors are doing. Some of you are, are leaving. We, we just today just prayed for a couple of families. They're moving out of state. And, and this happens all the time. Just had a brother in first service who he sent me an email this week. He says, you know, I have to move. And he explained why. He was so sad. Today is his last Sunday here. And he talked about, you know, he's searching for a church in the state in which he's moving to. And just the difficult challenge that it's been. He's been there. He came back to finalize his house and stuff. And he's basically saying, this is a really challenge. And I'm saying, you have to find a place where you can get plugged in. And let me help you. As you're, as you're going there, make sure that this is your leadership. It's super important. I'm telling you how to pick a good doctor. Peter's telling us how to pick a good doctor. You have to, you have to do your homework, and you have to hold to that standard. Amen? All right. Peter transitions now, and he transitions from the right actions from leaders in charge to the right actions for the church at large, right? We pick it up, uh, chapter 5 in uh, verse 5. And Peter says this, he says, likewise, you younger people. Now, younger, it can mean chronologically younger. So he could and, and, and is, in, in part, addressing those who are young. You know, uh, Paul told Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers, right? And, and so, in part, this is speaking to, in truth, those that are they're chronologically young. But it's not just limited to that. See, because he's saying this in the context of having just addressed the elders, right? And he's going to now address those who aren't elders. And so the idea here is, uh, you know, he's younger in the sense that they're subject to the elders, right? So it really is applying to, really, to all of you. If you, if you read through Acts chapter 5, there, uh, Ananias and Sapphira have come to Peter, and they basically, you know, they're hypocrites, and they're saying that they gave, you know, an amount of money to the church that they had received, and, and they're lying about it. And, and so basically, the Holy Spirit strikes them dead. Right, and it tells us there as we read as we read that that the young men wrapped them up and went out and buried them, and the idea here is that the young men were those that were subject to the elders. They they're like you, members of the church, faithfully serving, and so that's the idea here. Is is he says likewise you who aren't pastors who are faithfully serving, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud. He quotes here from Proverbs chapter three, but gives grace to the humble. 
Therefore, humble yourselves, and that's the key. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, as Peter exhorts us in the course of right action, he, he begins here as he's addressing the congregation by, by emphasizing two things. He emphasizes submission and he emphasizes humility. Very important points. In the course of right action, the emphasis is on submission and on humility. Now, he's going to expand on this list as we, in, as we read through and enter into next week. But we're just going to focus here, dialing in today on these two points, the, the right actions for the church at large, submission and humility. Now, these two things, these two attributes, they are inextricably linked together. Here's why. Because submission is best defined as subordinating yourself, or rather placing yourself under, right? That's submission. And the functional idea of humility is knowing your place. You might want to write that down. You might even want to circle humility nearby, right? Knowing your place. That's really the functional idea of what that means. And so, so the, the thing here is that together... Submission and humility, they, they make a picture. And the picture that they make is that every single one of us in the church has a role to play and the entire health and well-being and functionality of the church depends on every single one of us doing that unique thing that God has called us to do and doing so in such a way that not only is it the right action, but it's done with submission and humility. Submission, respecting those that are in different positions than we're in. Maybe we aspire to a certain position, but God in his sovereign will hasn't placed us in that position. Maybe we think that that's the position we'd like to do, but God hasn't gifted us to do that. Or maybe he's gifted us to do that, but it's the wrong season and he hasn't placed us into that responsibility. And so therefore, we need to submit to those who who are going to be in that position of authority over us. And also, humility is indicated in that. This idea that, okay, well... If I have to submit to someone and I'd like to have their job, but I don't have their job, I need to humble myself and do the job that God's called me to do. The Bible says that Jesus humbled himself. He's in the glory, the splendor of heaven. He's, he's God, and yet he made himself of nothing, of no reputation, and he humbled himself. And he came to earth as a man, and he suffered and died for something he didn't even do. You want to talk about Humility. This is what God did on our behalf. And so submission and and humility is indicated. Now, we've talked about this before, and so I'll just lightly touch on this. But submission, the definition of submission is not when you agree. It's just not. A lot of people say, okay, well, if you can persuade me that you're right, then I'll I'll submit. Well, that's not submission. That's just doing what you want to do. See, submission is doing what you don't want to do. That's when it starts to to even enter the the zip code of the definition of submission. You see, and and the Bible says that we are to submit to our elders. Peter says the same, or Paul says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 13. He says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable 
for you. And so the key to submission is humility. It's humility. It's, and the reason that's the key to it is, like I said, submission only begins to be defined when you disagree. And so you have to find that humble place, which is why Peter says in verse 7, if you'll skip there, he says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I would submit to you that when you're in a situation where you have to submit to somebody who you think is wrong, then that's a good opportunity and a good prescription to cast all your cares upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for you. I can think of of an election or two with, you know, Romans 13 in mind. I'm called to submit to the governing authorities. I'm like, I have zero respect for that governing authority. And the Lord would say to me, well, guess what? I choose who gets put into office. I'm ultimately the sovereign one over everything, and I've called you to submit. And that's when, man, First Peter 5, 7, I, Lord, I am casting all my care upon you because I know you care for me. And while I don't understand and while I don't agree, I can turn that person over to you. Some of you ladies are saying that right now. You're like, Lord, this man, that you, I, you, I've got to submit, and I'm going to cast all my cares upon you. And that may well be a word for one of you. I don't know. But the idea is, man, we need to trust in the Lord, and and we're called to submit. And that's where humility, the key is humility, and I want to finish on this point. The key is humility. And this is why Peter says that we are to be clothed with humility. Do you see that when he says that? We're to be clothed with humility? says it at the end of verse 5. If you want to circle that word clothed, this is super interesting. The word actually is a very unique word, and I I won't attempt to pronounce it in the Greek, but I'll tell you what it speaks of. It's referring to a a special apron that that slaves would wear. It's an apron that they fastened to the belt, and it distinguished them from free men, and it distinguished them as being a slave. And here's the picture, here's the idea. The picture is that humility, your humility as a Christian, Humility is what we are supposed to wear and that just as the apron identified that man as a slave, so too our humility identifies us as a slave of Jesus Christ. That's what it does. That's the picture here. It's a beautiful picture. Now, sadly, we're, cl- we're called to be clothed with humility, but sadly, in the name of godliness, we, we often don't wear humility. We, in fact, wear the opposite. Oftentimes, in the name of godliness, we wear pride, right? Now, I'll put it on the screen for time's sake. I won't have you turn there, but the reference is Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. I'll just read it for you here in the New Living Translation. Jesus tells this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. And the Pharisee stood, and he prayed this to himself. Notice, he prayed to himself. He he thinks he's going to pray to God, but he's proud, and he's arrogant, and God's like, you're not talking to me because I'm not listening. He's praying. He's just talking. He's praying to himself. Jesus says, here's what he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But, Jesus said, the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this sinner, 
not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, here's the thing. It's so easy for us to hear this story. And no doubt, you've heard it before. And, it's, and what we have a tendency to do, we have this tendency to paint ourselves with a good brush, and we always see ourselves as this tax collector. Don't we? We do. We think, oh, I'm the tax collector. I'm the one that says, Lord, have mercy on me. And look at that bonehead Pharisee. When in actuality, when you take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ, what you realize is more often than not, we are the Pharisee. We're the ones that play the God squad, looking at people's lives, going, that guy, he's just, look at what he's doing. He's such a sinner, right? The Bible says, be careful. The measure you use is going to be measured back to you, right? And, and here's the sobering implication of this parable that Jesus tells. This proud man, for all of his prayers and for all of his religious activities, this proud man, he thinks he's talking to God when really he's just talking to himself. He's just talking to thin air. And when he leaves this time of prayer, he leaves just as filthy as when he came. Now, that's a scary implication here. So the issue is humility. The idea is we need to humble ourselves. And it's been said that God has two plans. Plan A is humility, and plan B is humiliation. You don't want to go through plan B. God chastens those that that he calls as sons. And, and, And he gives us the opportunity to humble ourselves. Trust me, you want to humble yourself, you do not want to be humbled. Now, let me just close with this. Humility is what differentiates Christianity from every other religion, and it's what differentiates Christianity from every other culture. Because every other religion and culture is based on pride, but what makes humility so attractive and what conversely makes pride so ugly is this. Pride focuses on self, and humility focuses on others. It's others-centered. Now, this is, this is part of your homework assignment, but just if you contemplate John chapter 13 this week. Beautiful story, and of course, I'm sure you know it. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, partaking of communion. And, and it tells us there, and he fully knowing that Judas was going to betray him, says he girded himself, right? And the picture, just picture that being clothed with humility, it's the picture of having that apron at, that identifies you as a slave. Jesus girded himself. He, put on, he didn't have the, the, the maid's apron or the, the, the slave's apron, rather. But what he had was a towel, and he wore it as a slave's apron, and he washed the disciples' feet. Even the feet of the person that hours from there was going to betray him. That's humility. And here's, here's just what the, the closing thought I want to leave you with. And two scriptures that I want to leave you with and just take a walk with this week. Ultimately, and hear this, if you hear nothing else I've said, hear this. Ultimately, humility is knowing your place. It's knowing your place. And I ask you the question today, and I really want you to take a walk with this this week. Do you know your place? See, because here's what Paul said to the Romans. Romans 12, 3, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who's among you, 
not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And you know, as you read through Romans chapter 12 this week, what you will see is that it's all about presenting our body in sacrificial service to God. And Paul says this in, in Romans 12, 6, the beginning of Romans 12, 6. He says, having gifts that, diff, that uh, differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. And all of that to say this, Peter's point here in verses 5 through 7, and we close it on this, is that we are to be humble, we are to know our place, and we are to get to work. That's the idea. And so I just ask you the question is, we now just celebrate the most other-centered act of all of human history, Jesus sacrificing himself, humbly giving himself to the point of death for your sins and for mine. I ask you the question, do you know your place?